Podcast. See? There was nothing. And that's how it always begins. Very small. Hello and welcome back to Film Podcast with Brian Stump and Joe Friend. Thanks for joining us in the stunning conclusion of Big Trouble in Little China. This is part two of our podcast. Here's a quick recap of the event so far. This is a big day in my life. I should have gone home and gotten 40 winks. A girl from China. All right. I never done that. I mean, I picked up girls from everywhere else, but never from China. She pretty? I'm going to marry her, Jack. Oh, God. I've known her since we were kids, but I haven't seen her in five years. I came here alone. I worked my fingers till they bled. Before you knew me, Jack, I slept on the floor. I saved every nickel to bring her here because I love her so much, Jack. About all sorts of scary things. About an ancient army of the dead, the, the spirit city, and monkey sacrifices. And monkey sacrifices. Monkey sacrifices. Monkey sacrifices. Let's jump back in, Monkey shall we? I think later they end up in the hell of the uh, right side up center. So I'm not sure how the sinning happens. Maybe uh, Egg can explain that kind of mixed up uh, Chinese cultural uh, mixed bag, whatever. But um, but yeah, different hells. And uh, how did we get out of this one hell in the upside center? Well, they didn't. They got captured or rescued, I guess, because they were about to drown. They had to swim their way out and they wound up underneath a sewer grate upon which Thunder was standing. And Thunder took a Thunder. Put them in uh put them in wheelchairs, tied them up, and stuck them in a metal room full of skeletons. This is where we get the first keen insight into Jack's boot knife <laughs> that you spoiled earlier on. He falls over, pulls out his boot knife, frees him. I think we also get a slice of the whimsy of the screenwriters, because I feel like in the writer's room, if there was one, <laughs> maybe it was the writer's hovel or a cubicle or just like I feel like this was written in a windowless van <laughs> with several loose baggies of cocaine <laughs> floating around. The one yeah, so one screenwriter says to the other hey you know what would be awesome so if there was like this uh, visual gag of someone in a wheelchair just like rolling backwards towards a pit wouldn't that be hilarious if our hero jack burton was in that wheelchair which is the only way we can really explain why are the hostages put in wheelchairs and maybe it's uh, to be living vicariously through lopan who also has to appear in a wheelchair i don't know but odd choice for hostage let me pose you a question brian oh please when is the last time that You've taken a hostage. We'll just start simple. Last Tuesday. I mean, come on. And did you have the opportunity to interrogate this hostage? Well, I didn't have a wheelchair, but yeah, I needed to. Yeah. After the interrogation, it's exhausting on on both parties. <laughs> yes, it's quite exhausting on all parties. I would posit. And if your hostage, your interrogee is incapacitated, wheelchair is the appropriate mechanism for transporting them to and fro their dungeon lair and the torture chamber. I'll bring it up to my hostage, which, uh, a- a.k.a. my wife, as she always claims to be. We're not doing Handmaid's Tale this season, so. <laughs> oh, it's me. I'm the one she dresses up in those hoods and everything. 
But yes, Thunder takes them away to, I believe, for their first meeting with a young Mr. Dave. David Lopan in his octogenarian form. Power up. Was just great physical makeup or if that was actually a puppet. You know, Pretty sure it was just like a, a sheet of rubberized skin that they covered him with to make him appear like that old. But that one scene where he glows before he transforms into Lopan. I believe that, yeah, there was a special effects feat where they put 3,000 watt bulbs inside a uh, silicon mask and had his mouth open to, I mean, that's quite a makeup job. Could be a puppet. Who knows? If I were an actor, I'd have three requests for every film. One is, uh, please have me in a far off place. Two, have me in a wheelchair most of the time. And three, have green M&Ms in my train. Green m That's all I need. Yeah. And we know why. Um... <laughs> No. Anyways, <laughs> so Dave Lopan's performance, uh, that's his uh, corporeal form. Yeah, right? Corporeal, yeah, that's a good word. Ladies and gentlemen, we're exercising some word power today. <laughs> oh, oh. A podcast with Brian Stumpf and Joe Friend. So they get to the Wing Kong Exchange. They get captured after going through several hells. They have a conversation with David Lopan, who it's mostly exposition, of course. Here's why we're doing what we're doing once again in Big Trouble in Little China. They're telling you exactly what's going on at every single step. And then they get taken back to the room to cool off and they escape. They escape thunder. He almost falls down a well. And then in their escape, they go back to the black pool of the Dragon Restaurant and they enlist the help Eddie this time to come rescue the women. <laughs> I can help you. And Egg's sitting outside in his bus. And here you have an amazing rescue scene. And I need to note something at this point because, do. you know, Eddie and Wang are just walking across the bridge while, while Jack's muscling his way underneath it. And then Jack talks to Margot and they're trying to find Gracie Law. And anyway, so Eddie and Wang are getting their asses kicked by the Lady Tigers. What are they called? The White Tigers? It was awesome. That was quite a scene. The fight scenes, they kind of have them in groups. We do have an appearance by the security guards, spoiler alert, later on in the film, when I guess it's kind of irrelevant. This is the moment where it's just, I guess, um, they have to uh, have a gender-specific kind of group attacking uh, Wang and... Eddie. You know, I mean, it's one thing to very obviously have a pen full of women that are sex trafficking victims, mm. but it kind of makes it even more evil that it's women who are overseeing the whole process. So they've just taken evil and made it more evil, in my opinion. One of the fierce women fighters has a um, some sort of uh, pole that also is a bong of death of sorts. I don't know. She's able to kind of shoot smoke out from the end of her pole as a, a means of attacking Eddie. I think 12-year-old Brian would be severely disappointed that you do not know a bow staff when you see one, especially anyone that was grew up peripherally to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was one of their prominent weapons. And this bow staff was filled with noxious gas, is what I'm assuming it wasn't. It doesn't make sense to give away marijuana to people that are fighting you. I don't know. It might slow him down a little bit. I mean, yeah. Eddie's got some kick-ass uh, reflexes. I mean, the, both Wang and Eddie, I hope it has nothing to do with their... Uh, cultural origins or anything like that but they both seem to be expert at karate while jack uh, just kind of what is he where does he is he dispatched again at this point he doesn't really do a whole lot in this fight scene either does this he is the point i was making eventually since once before you taken us through the byzantine corridors of brian's mind sans minotaur when jack goes to free the women he pulls out his little machine pistol <gasps> jack where's gracie on the floor next door she's a, a wildcat how are you gonna spring us I have no idea. 
and he fires about 10 to 12 rounds at the locks directly behind the locks there is groups of women in cages which i'm assuming he had to have accidentally shot a few women during this process we all, we also get to see our first movie goof at this point because the women escape twice uh, there's one scene that shows them throwing the doors open and running and then they do a reverse and it's the same exact scene they cut back to again of the women opening the doors and running it's just something that was missed in the edit this is not the first plot hole a place so nice you want to escape it twice <laughs> This is where they find a really sweet pool. Maybe the women have tried to attempt it before because one woman, she just knows it's there, runs and does a flying leap right in. I'm assuming it wasn't cleaning day. She was assuming the water was still there. I think everyone else just kind of takes their time and dips their toes in first to make sure it's not too cold. Yeah, I thought about that. I've spent some time living in the Florida Keys and jumping off of high objects where we didn't quite know if there was enough water underneath. And that was <laughs> reckless. So yeah, right. She was She was reckless. But getting back to filming, it's it's got to be hard to film just general water scenes. Have you ever been on a set where they were doing any form of water-based filming? How do you say that? <laughs> <laughs> Funny you say that. My first film was annulment, and stupidly, because of my uh, passion for Jaws, I thought I had to have some scenes on the water. There was a scene where uh, my actor, stuntman Jared Blake DeCroach, jumps off a bridge right into the water. It's a pretty high bridge. I think it's about at least uh, 30, 40 feet, and uh, swims over to our protagonist, Uncle Walt, old guy. And uh, that kind of uh, it begins the whole movie, annulment. <laughs> it's funny. Just this morning, Uncle Walter says to me, Divorce isn't the end of the world. But I don't know. Kind of looks like it is. But this was filmed, like, what time of year? Was it the summer? It was the summer. Yeah, I wouldn't do that to my actors. But the water is still pretty cold up there. Isn't <laughs> it only like 50 degrees? He knew what he signed up for, and he did a phenomenal job. And I uh, got a hand to him. I think he's uh, still doing some great stuff. If you find him, if you look him up on IMDb, he's doing great stuff. Jared Blake DeCroach. Did you film this from the banks or were you on a boat? How's this work? I was actually on a pontoon boat. And uh, my uh, cinematographer was cursing my name because uh, obviously water is not always perfectly still. Water's not still. Other boats have a lot of low end on them. So it could definitely screw up your audio recordings. Brian, you're just, you're a maniac. I know, I was glutton for punishment. I don't know what I was thinking. That's kind of the point I'm making here is that any film where they're like hey we're just gonna film underwater and you look at the abyss and it's like jesus why would you torture yourself ron howard but he did it was a great movie and very much so uh in big trouble in little china adding to the mystery of it it's just the fact that the wing kong exchange is this wonderful magical seemingly larger than it actually is place that incorporates all these different hells and also has a really cool secret ocean waterway to get in and if you're familiar with san francisco you're also familiar that it's an island surrounded by water of course Thank you. Uh, so it just adds to the mystery of yeah. uh, this this whole and the mystique of this whole this whole movie and this whole world that they built plus of hells in this uh, wing kong exchange maybe little china but down below the wing kong is big trouble what you see is they escape and this is a sweet moment because uh, jack no i think gracie gracie's looking for uh, each person as they come through and she's looking for Jack. It's, it's kind of cute. sweet and adorable, but yeah, uh, each, each person comes through and she makes sure they're safe. But then Jack comes, I think, I think, is this their first kiss? That's their first kiss. And I think it's an organic moment. I would say Jack takes a liberty, <laughs> but at the same time, it just seems cute. Oh, hey! <clears throat> Sorry. Sorry, I'm just thrilled to be alive. Yeah, sure. 
he's quite smitten after that moment too because uh, he has to comment on it seems as though her body is rubbing up against him on purpose jack can't help himself and i would say that <laughs> he covers up his inexperience um with lots of words consider his life he's a trucker mm-hmm. he doesn't interact with people other than to eat a sandwich into his cb radio <laughs> that was pre-internet for you millennials out there cb uh, radio uh watch smoking the bandit if you want to get a better history of the CB and had a brief moment of popularity among your fathers back in the 70s. With all his swagger, perhaps he's actually a lonely soul just talking out into the universe on a CB radio. Yeah, dude. I mean, that's played out through and through. Even in this next scene, he's just, he's incompetent. He's inept. Doesn't know what he's doing. At the end of the movie, he just gives up on a golden opportunity for what? For what reason? For this great life that he had? That's right. Are we jumping ahead to the end where he refuses to give her a kiss? A goodbye kiss? God, aren't you even going to kiss her goodbye? I think it's appropriate to talk about that right now. Jack's fault. I mean, he might be asexual. We don't know. Jack is, but we... (laughs) We, we do know that his swagger is misplaced because in the very next scene with all the women escaping mm-hmm. and everybody in tow, they're like, oh, it's easy. We just walk out after here. And it turns out that half of the Wing Kongs are on the other side of the door. And he tells everybody to hide. They just saw him. And, and Jack manages to incapacitate himself once again. And Wang has to do all the fighting. <laughs> but they do escape. Not before we see what is one of those what the fuck moments that I'm curious about in this film. And like, why was this even included? Was the movie made better for the inclusion of this one thing? Brian Brian what is this one thing what is it what is it the slobber monster Brian or I think it was Bill the Sewer Monster. Oh, yes. I, I did some research. Yeah, they're right. The Sewer Monster, who uh, John Carpenter wanted to look like a combination of a werewolf and Nosferatu. So they make their escape. Most of them get into Egg Chen's tour bus, which, by the way, can absorb bullets yep. and then become perfectly back to normal after it drives away. <laughs> we also learned something else. Security guards are heavily armed with machine guns and have no trouble firing out onto a public street. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They just light up the truck. You can get past these security guards. They don't see anything wrong uh, with trying to give them the ruse of being telephone repairmen. But you try to leave. You try to walk away without paying them a tip. They get right pissed. Yeah, that's when they unleash the uh, machine guns and fill eggs bus full of bullets. And as I mentioned, drives away. It's perfectly back to normal. Is that the end? (laughs) That's that's the uh, first part, right? Uh, Oh, or does that happen again at the end? In the end, end, they don't have the bus. They have uh, Jack's truck. Correct. That's right. They escape and they get back to the Dragon Pool uh, restaurant and they realize that they're missing Gracie Law, who decided to stick her face in an open door because, I don't know, she's just so curious. I mean, they're rushing out of this place, but she's like, are those are those eyeballs in the wall right there? Is that a big, giant, hairy orangutan about to come after me? <laughs> yeah, Meow Ying. Meow. She's also still not out of there yet, right? They still have Jack's truck. Their whole mission failed, basically. They found some people that they could help escape. As for rescuing Yao Yang and also making things worse by losing Gracie, I mean, that was the came up bupkis with that uh, particular mission. Is they have to head back in to uh, more for more big trouble. Pray your card to write. You live to talk about it. Yeah, and the sewer monster, designed and uh, made by a screaming mad George, who was uh, kind of a big deal back in the 80s. He did a lot of work, mostly with uh, the more low-budget uh, horror films, but uh, most known for society, his work in the end of society. He did Predator. Oh, yeah, did a little bit of Predator. I mean, a lot of work went to that. Dream Master, I guess uh, two of the Nightmare on Elm Streets. Uh, born and raised in Japan, but had a hell of a time uh, making some great... Uh, special effects including the sewer monster of big trouble in little china yeah i think they had the most difficulty and this will be another what the fuck moment with the the eyeball 
what was that thing called? Oh yeah, the floating eyeball. I think it's just a spy for Lopan. They had multiple levers and pulleys and bladders and uh, woolly bobs and things. That was quite a design and making it float. Another out of nowhere, what the fuck? Yeah. Hey, you never know. You try. But uh, what happens when Gracie gets taken away? Doesn't she? I think Lopan wants to come look at her, and he checks her out and decides that. Hey, she has green eyes too, so it makes perfect sense that I would actually marry two green-eyed ladies. I mean, yeah, and it's kind of like a foregone conclusion with him, and he's very <laughs> patronizing to young Gracie Law. But I guess when you're the lord of your own empire, you, you can afford to be that way. What's a little polygamy? I mean, come on. Something that jumped out at me throughout this whole movie is that anytime there's a scene with Egg Shen and Wang, mm-hmm. Egg Shen is finding a way to either push or shove Wang around. He's always like. Physically assaulting him in some way. If you- a brave man likes the feel of nature on his fist, Jack. Yeah, and a wise man has enough sense of getting out of the rain. Any scene that those two are together, just take a peek. Anytime they're moving somewhere, he just gives them a shove or pushes them through the door, just grabs him by the collar. I always kept noticing that. You're saying Egg is always assaulting Wang? He's a bully. That's a double entendre. Egg Shen's a bully. Uh, <laughs> he's just a bully. So, um, yeah, there's the big kiss. Big kiss. What are you having a stroke, dude? We're well past that. I know. I'm just trying to catch up here. <laughs> so more time with uh, Lopan. Ladies and gentlemen, film podcast formerly with Brian Stumpf and Joe Friend has now become film podcast with Joe Friend. It's helpful to know the movie that we're going to talk about. Oh, proceed. Proceed. With so your, uh, Superman, there's this guy. He's like super. He's a man. He's a man who does super things. I think he like flew around. Back to... uh... All right. So, how do they get in? They go to... Oh, I know, I know, I know. They go to the Ghostbusters. Yes, the Egg Shen's Fortress. They go to Egg Shen's Fortress, formerly uh, of Ghostbusters fame from the year prior. We also learn that uh, Egg is a bit of a rich fellow. I guess he owns the whole block. I'm not sure why he does tours. Maybe just it's just for cover. And of of course, Jack uh, has no respect for any of the awesomeness of the Ghostbusters place. He calls it a dump. He lives here. He owns the whole block. He's a very rich guy. Rich... This place is a dump, Wang. Hey, to Western eyes, the stuff in these bottles is priceless. Jack's currency is in trucks. None of this is a beautiful teen wheeler. Mm, the open row. Nothing like the open row. Yeah. yeah and then uh, I think there is a kind of a pole, a fireman's pole in this one, just like there was with Ghostbusters. And this is Egg's secret way of getting back into hell. You don't have to go through a telephone repairman or anything like that. You can just like hop right onto yep. this pole and they're back where we were, where they were. They make their way into the underground and they see the black blood of the earth. <laughs> you mean oil? Not before Egg takes a monster bong hit. <laughs> so simultaneously, while Egg Shen is prepping his group of warriors, inclusive of Jack Burton, uh, we have Lopan prepping his brides for the ceremony. So they're, they have to survive this weird test. First, it involves a little demonstration of martial arts showmanship from the Three Storms. And I just want to make a note here to Thunder, if he's listening. Thunder, for the love of God, please stop skipping your leg days. You're all upper body, man. Uh, the one thing I want to note here is that they have to tame the Burning Blade. Burning Blade, what we are led to believe is a multi-thousand-year-old curse and ceremony, seems to be tamed through some electronic hardware. It's not good enough for Lopan that these young women are very attractive and intelligent. They have to also survive the Burning Blade. And what's the deal? I mean, rain, thunder, and lightning all have to dance with their toys, their trinkets, and every single one of them is clearly suffering from asthma. Whenever they have to do a move, it comes from the diaphragm. Every single move they do to survive the Burning Blade, 
blade, what that means is you have to hold on tight as the blade takes you up about two or three stories. And then that's it. And then they let you down and like, wow, you have survived this horrible dance ceremony and you've held on to this blade for a good while. So therefore you are a suitable match for Lopin. Well, I want to just note that once again, there's a piece of electronic hardware that's involved in this ceremony somehow. They have to go up and touch the pearl, which is connected to some electrical Medusa head. And I was just like, who was the craftsman who created this? So like somewhere, someone somewhere was commissioned to create this device that will satisfy a deity somehow. I don't see that happening that often. We watched the burning blade ceremony, which is this almost psychedelic romp down uh, karate way. Speaking of psychedelic romp, we see them walking down the, you know, Egg Shen is leading his crew. This uh, sewer area that they're walking through, ah, that's a psychedelic romp because doesn't some sort of giant cockroach type thing come out of nowhere uh, and chomp one guy? Just a very brief appearance by this other thing, other monster besides uh, the sewer monster. Let's set that up a little. The, the, the warriors are, you know, walking through the cavernous underground. They hear this gurgling, breathing sound coming from the water as a bit of misdirection. And one of the poor, sorry, what were those guys called? They were mm, eggs. Not eggs the Wing Kong. The uh, eggs, the, om- the omelets, uh, the egg, uh, yeah. egg explanation. The, I can't remember the name of this, his crew. Chang Sings. Chang so, Sing, of course. They're the good ones. One of the unfortunate Chang Sings haplessly turns around and right as a sewer, another monster comes out of a hole and chops them in half and eats them. Basically modeled after an angler fish. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. A sweet little design by uh, Screaming Mad George, uh, but we don't really see much of them. Would you say you actually caught one? Uh, <laughs> an angler fish? They live too deep, and they're actually, angler fish are quite small. They're actually like less than an inch big. Yeah. Oh, so that was uh, overblown? That was not the actual No, uh, I would scale. say that that was something else entirely. Uh, however... <laughs> We learned that Egg's running a zero-sum game because he just doesn't even check to see if that guy's okay, if there's a part of him that caught on. Just, <laughs> he just throws a grenade, his version of a grenade in there. Come out no more! What? Huh? What'll come out no more? Come on! Egg has all kinds of fun trickets. He's like the big trouble in Little China Batman. Peasant magic. Oh, the six demon bag. Terrific, a six demon bag. Yeah, he comes rocking a fistful of amethyst uh, in most uh, fight scenes. Yeah, he's got like this little, little, I don't know what it is. It's kind of like uh, uh, a gun that shoots a pulley that can kind of get someone from uh, level A to level B. I mean, I'm not sure where he was, where he was uh, storing that, but yeah, he pulled it out in, in nick of time. It's called a crossbow and it had a pulley system and it lifted everybody up and it looked pretty cool, but I'm not certain how a guy can one-handedly repel several people in such a fashion. <laughs> I didn't see it was connected to anything, so. Uh, but that wasn't the only plot hole. One of the big plot holes comes up when Lopan, for certain, knows that Egg Shen and the Chang Sings are making an incursion into his fortress, and Lopan just doesn't care. He's like, oh, whatever, I'm just going to have my wedding instead. <laughs> and it's almost bound to be intercepted by these group of people, so we know that that's happening. Don't forget that one scene before the whole wedding chamber where Lightning has to go visit Meow and Gracie in their dressing room, dressed up beautifully, actually, I might add. For some reason, for this ceremony, he has to zap his fingers a little bit so that they can get uh, white sclera lenses. So both of them no longer have like the green eyes that we thought were the whole reason they were getting married. They have to have these totally white, opaque eyes. It also leaves me with a big hanging question mark over my head about what is Lightning's actual skill. (laughs) 
applying contact lenses, clearly. I can make concentrated electricity between my hands and that somehow affects their eyes. Uh, Also, I have lightning in my eyes. I don't know why lightning is in my eyes. Uh, Seems like that would hurt. Talented with the fingers up that sweet wedding chamber down in the whatever nether regions, hells, uh, sewer area, because there's an escalator. How sweet is that? There's an escalator and there's a giant neon rimmed skull <laughs> lots of stuff rimmed in neon it almost looks like a late 70s miami nightclub oh yeah they've wandered into once again i applaud david lopan's business acumen for having all these different areas of his wing kong exchange decorated in such a way quite an overblown use of buddha's statues pretty much everywhere he has all his whole uh hallway of nowhere where the whole ceremony of the burning blade took place had multiple buddhas um at least uh 47 to my to my count. I think that's part of what the Wing Kong Exchange sold, though. I think they sold statuary. Oh, that's what they uh, they marketed. I don't know if they marketed it. We we are led to believe in a few of the scenes when Jack and Wang go in and out of the Wing Kong Exchange that there's row upon row of unpainted statuary sitting on shelves. And I made the assumption that maybe that's what some of the captured women were for. They make them paint statues and stuff. Holy cultural commodification! That's quite a market. I didn't know there was such a thing. So he's got he's got a surplus. So. Of these Buddha statues. Yeah, so the, the wedding ceremony begins. The wedding ceremony begins, but also we have Egg Shen and company making it into David Lopan's private office. And that's where they get served up the secret magic potion from Egg Shen that's supposed to make them invincible. Oh, For some yeah. reason, Wang explicitly gives a toast to the American Armed Forces. Cheers! Uh, this does what again exactly? Use buzz. Oh, good. Here's to the Army and Navy and the battles they have won. Here's to America's colors, the colors that never run. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. What? (laughs) At no point did this factor into any part of the conversation or the thinking, but hey, since we're doing a toast, let's just toast America's military for some reason. They're not here, by the way, and we haven't seen them at all. We haven't mentioned them, but we're just going to bring it up right now. (laughs) Yeah, that was a sweet scene because out of nowhere, there is uh, a bar. Pretty much uh, Egg just sidles up to the bar. He becomes the bartender. He has this potion type shot thing. He presents it. You know, they're going to have a toast to each other, have a shot. I mean, that's the way you do things in big trouble or in little China. And uh, so they set it all up and they have a toast i think wind fire and all that thing is one of their toasts and they all take a shot and jack has a sweet toast he says may the wings of liberty never lose a feather manly yeah rock on see that at a monster truck rally (laughs) now we think it was in that shot well maybe it was mushroom tea or something interesting <laughs> was the rest of it just an imagination? Because I mean, I do whip out some avatars at one point, Egg Shen and Lopan. But uh, well, yeah, but that's that's after we go through the the weird needle love scene. So we're intercutting here sure. between the two groups, and we see that Lopan's piercing Miao Yen with his needle of love. Oh yeah, what's he? That's part of the ceremony. Is just jabbing at her wrist with a big sewing needle. What the heck? No, I think it's his way to get his own blood back was to draw hers. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think some form of vampire mysticism in there as Man, well. Call it blood bank. For some reason, she has very resistant wrist skin or something because he just can't can't quite get that sewing needle to do any work. He is kind of a thousand year old, <laughs> probably weakling at that point with no blood. But, but we get to the intersection of these two groups. And I just want to note that something that surprised me here was somebody that was seemingly a badass in the beginning of the movie dies so readily here. And I don't know if you remember the cowboy guy 
from the very beginning fight scene between the uh, Chang Sings and the Wing Kongs. But he had like the two revolvers in his belt and he's touching his guns. He fires up and shoots the sign. And he just seemed like a badass through that whole fight in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the movie, this guy dies like just some rando just comes up and kills him. And he's just gone. There's no no resistance. And I guess sometimes that's the breaks of battle. But I was disappointed to see him die without it, without any fanfare. Once again, Joe is catching those little bits and pieces that slip through the cracks. I don't recall this character whatsoever. But <laughs> I believe it. Multiple trampolines all throughout this whole scene. I'm not, well, I don't think their feet are on the floor for most of their fighting. They're just kind of like flying in the air, kind of like levitating, going sideways, kind of going diagonal, and then kind of kicking and punching and poking. And then somehow Wang gets the... Oh, and where is Jack this whole time? May I ask you, Joe Friend, where is Jack? He once again time? incapacitated himself. This time... <laughs> He overzealously fired his gun into the air, uh, causing uh, some plaster to dislodge and hit him on the head. No, there's also the part where I think this is the part where uh, this this kind of guy out of nowhere, full of armor, covered oh, in right. armor, he, he, and and Jack takes his dagger and in his um, his vicious fighting style lays out his back and then sticks his dagger between his feet, his feet between his boots, and he gets it pokey poke towards the armor guy in the armor, and of course the, <laughs> the guy in the armor obliges by walking directly into the knife and. He has won that fight. What happens then is the guy in the armor, apparently with so much metal on him, he just kind of falls forward. And for the rest of the fight, Jack is stuck underneath this guy. There was an homage to that in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, I believe the second one, where uh, Gimli is stuck under one of the uh, wolf monsters and that he can't get him off. Jack does get up because, uh, yeah, he has to go uh, rescue Gracie. The three bodyguards of Lopan, Rain, Thunder, and Lightning. They seem to come across as total kick-ass, powerful. They're no match for anybody. Wang actually holds his own. Comes out of nowhere. It must have been Egg's uh, mushroom potion that made him. In order to defeat the dream, you need to become the dream, Brian. Ah, <laughs> he became a dream. He became the dream. Yeah. I, mean, I would say that nothing was beyond their ability initially. They just got a heaping dose of confidence from that. Mm-hmm. And then obviously Egg with his bag of tricks has other things. He has a crystal bazooka. Somehow oh, yeah. they became Nintendo warriors at some point. They had proxy fighters, uh, both Egg Shen and David Lopez. never could beat the Egg Shen. The hologram showguns, the avatars that jump out of there. Yeah, but it, it literally looked like they were holding Nintendo controllers because they were working their hands like <laughs> video games. It's just the tongue-in-cheek homage that leads me to believe that John Carpenter is just a goofy motherfucker, dude. Yeah, in fact, oh, that brought you to that conclusion? <laughs> I think you made a good point because for some wacky reason, the re- in order for Lopan to operate his uh, Avatar sh- hologram Shogun warrior guy, he has to work his thumbs really hard as if he's like jamming on the, the yeah. buttons of his... It was joystick. Joystick. Is that that thing? Uh, that's too far back. I'm sorry. I'm dating myself here. And that ends in a draw, causing Lopan to want to escape because uh, he realizes that they're they're outclassed at this moment. Yeah, I think there's a fight with a uh, sewer monster with Jack and the sewer monster, or maybe Gracie helps out. Because I remember the point where a sewer monster kind of goes after Jack, but then Gracie kicks the monster in the tank. She kind of behind. Right. She kind of gets him from behind. She kind of gives him a. A swinging kick from from behind, and I'm assuming it went straight for the taint because the sewer monster just is really put out. And so, so here we learn that the sewer monster has similar 
genitalia placement to uh, its primate and human counterparts, which is good. Works out well for them. Uh, and that it is, in fact, a male creature, apparently, because it succumbs <laughs> to that blow so readily. Um, and that enables Gracie and Jack to take the elevator up to David Lopan's private office. Doesn't uh, this uh, another moment where Gracie and Jack have a, like an intimate kind of little steering contest and Jack's trying to ply on the swagger and she's kind of receptive to it. Um, well, yeah, he's he's under the influence of the dream potion. Of the dream potion, of course, yes, yes. She's all dressed up in, in her wedding uh, uh, Chinese Chinese wedding outfit, complete with uh, an excess of rouge. Hmm. Around the eyes, she looks almost like a tanuki. <laughs> um, and he's like, "Why are you dressed like that?" And anyway, they have it. They, they share a tender moment. Oh, and then it so. still gets to be Jack. Jack still becomes the clown because with a big sloppy kiss on Gracie, he walks away, swaggers away with uh, lipstick all over his face, or at least over his lips. So he comes out. Oh man, how many times did I dream at that age? I wouldn't also have lipstick from some girl kissing me <laughs> on me. Sloppy kisser, I guess. It's just all over his face. <laughs> I can't fault him that. Do you have a gun, I hope? I have a knife. A knife? This guy's 12 feet tall! Seven. Hey, don't worry, I can handle him. I took something. I can see things no one else can see. Why are you dressed like that? I... I, I was getting married. They go back up to Lopan's office, and as Kurt's going up there uh, after his joyful reunion with Gracie Law, you just hear this weird off-camera dialogue happening between uh, Lopan and Miao Young. It's just this super strange, <laughs> weird, unnecessary dialogue uh, that's going on between them. Look into my eyes. No, no. I've suffered so much pain and agony. Look at me. No, I don't understand. I don't belong to you. And then Wang and Jack happen upon Lopan and Miao Yen and Thunder. Everybody intersected now. You got Wang and Jack and Thunder and Lopan and Gracie Law and Miao Yen. And Wang takes on Thunder. As they're fighting through, this is almost a cartoon fight at this point because, you know, they, they go off camera and you see all this furniture come flying through the side. <laughs> and then Wang runs away from Thunder and Thunder pauses to karate chop a dog statue in half and you gotta wonder like what's his reasoning for chopping this dog statue in half it's, it's technically it's Lopan's property and I'm going to assume that it's very valuable because it's in his private office part of his private collection and everything else looks pretty valuable I just I question Thunder at some point he's a goofball yeah well it's total cartoon slapstick it's basically Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner antics throughout this whole scene uh, so anyway, um, you have Wang and Thunder fighting, uh, and during this fight scene, Jack takes out his trusty boot knife, and he's going to dispatch David mm -hmm. Lopan, uh, but he completely misses and hits the gun. <laughs> Lopan picks up the knife and forms him. It's a good blade, and you know, we're not going to spoil it for you, but we know how movies end. Hey, it's all in the reflexes, so I think he comes around. Usually the good guys win, and then uh, once Thunder notices what's going on, he turns into a soft little bitch. The oddest reaction to... Uh, seeing your boss get killed why not get revenge why like whine yourself into cry yourself <laughs> into an early grave which is technically what thunder did cry himself doesn't he like decide he has to start inflating yeah but for what purpose <laughs> he just explodes yeah he's just so angry he's just like his asthma becomes he, he can't uh, it's all it's awful he just inflates himself he can't breathe 
he, he inflates himself. He just kind of gets, he's steaming from the nostrils. He's outraged. And yeah, that's his response is to just, I don't know. I guess they had uh, some leftover bladders from all the special effects and they decided it was time to kind of inflate one of the bad guys. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> so Jack and company uh, escape to help Egg Shen. And finally, finally, Lightning has a cool scene. Because he was always just, whatever, dude. Just little glam boy running around. But here he's in the uh, corridor and he's firing his lightning behind them to be like, I'm coming for you. And just, <laughs> I got my zap, zap fingers. The whole giant metal grate comes down behind him in this like molten ball of lava. <laughs> it's really an excellent scene. And that's lightning's that's a lightning's redemption right there. Uh, but then he gets taken out by a statue of all things. A Buddha? Doesn't a Buddha come at him or something? Yeah, he gets hit with a statue. Wow. So lightning's like, I, I can fly. I can do this. But, <laughs> you know, no match for a, a, a Buddha statue. That's when... Egg pulls out his little pulley gun, his little Batman gadget, and everyone goes zippy zip up his uh, little pulley thing, and they get out of there just in time. Yep, they escape. They find the truck. The truck's going to escape. We find several more security guards with AK-47s are firing repetitively at them. Yeah. Egg unceremoniously blows them up to pieces. <laughs> Body parts. Men who are just taking a paycheck, probably with families and young children at home. People relying on these guys to bring home pay in the middle of San Francisco. Uh, and he sets off a grenade. Great. Uh, then they escape. <laughs> finally make their escape. And is this where Jack finally sees his truck? Uh, well, they escape in the truck. Yeah. Yeah. He finally... Uh... I hope his, uh, his his insurance agent was notified that he uh, he actually found his abandoned truck finally. I think it's only like 36. It's either 36 or 72 hours before the insurance company has to give you money for a missing vehicle. <laughs> and at which point the, the title would revert to the insurance company, not to Jack. And they wouldn't legally be allowed to sell that vehicle back to them. <laughs> I'd have to check law back in the year this was released, but uh, I know nowadays... It's a different story. Please do. This is the most riveting part of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah so they get away. They get away from. Uh, they come go zooming away, and uh, and they they wind up back at the restaurant. Yeah. Well, don't. There's uh there's one more little uh, green green motif at this point because I think there's there's is there like a slightly a little bit of a chase or something like they have to go zoomy zoom off with this truck and then uh, they have to hit that red. There's a uh, stoplight in which they have to come to a screeching halt. And I think it's just a sweet moment. They realize that they're safe. And then the light goes, you guessed it. The light goes green. And then they get back to the Dragon of the Black Pool restaurant. If you never had the chance to eat there, I would highly recommend it. Anyone going to uh, San Francisco. And here we get to learn that uh, Jack co-ops the Chang Sing hand symbol for his own. <laughs> Thanks for stealing our shit, you goofy white usurper. Hey, I mean, and he went through all that work. I mean, he was like clearly the hero of the whole film. I mean, everything he did was going to get everything. I mean, he totally propelled the plot at, any, at every point. I mean, without his heroics. It was nice of him to take a step back and not handle any of the hard work uh, throughout the entire movie. <laughs> oh, and Eddie, Eddie gets a girl. I mean, this came out of nowhere. I mean... Who's Margot? I mean, Margot is kind of a character there simply for exposition, but for some somehow, some way, at some point, a little romance and flirtation happened between Eddie and Margot, and so we are to believe that they are happily ever after at the end of the movie. So good for them. Well, you know, Eddie, in addition to being a mater d', is also a whole lot more. <laughs> a whole lot more. Include ladies' man underneath that. Um, so Eddie gets <laughs> his girl, uh, Wang gets his girl, and uh, Jack gets his truck. <laughs> 
<laughs> he could have gotten Gracie, but he walks away and he says a few cool things with a very John Wayne kind of swaggery way. He says, what good are those words? We know that he's just going to disappear and go off and be by himself again. I know. Not kiss his, uh, the girl that's been like eluding him the whole time. It's just a sad, craven existence. <laughs> If you were to look at this movie just from like, hey, who's this Jack Burton guy? He's just this sad, lonely man who bumbles his way through things. He's made mistake after mistake and then perpetuates the mistake at the end uh, with the final big mistake. Can't decide whether he's a cowboy or a trucker. He just kind of is a mismatch or whatever. Tries to hold his own in martial arts. He, he doesn't know what genre he's in, really. And he picks up some baggage regardless as they drive <laughs> off, which was never quite answered. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Baggage. The very end. Yep. I think that would be a, a great little TV miniseries. Jack and the Sewer Monster <laughs> yeah. uh, on the road. Kind of like a reality show. Yeah. Riding off together. Yeah. Every which way but loose kind of thing where he drives uh, around with an orangutan and as, as a passenger. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that movie. That was Clint Eastwood, right? They just try to mix in and uh, do good, but uh, people start making fun of him for having a sewer monster. So he has to show some manners for people. That's all. This is a good movie. What do you think? Final thoughts, Joe. Do you have any final thoughts at all? Or Final thoughts. This movie stands up if you allow yourself the suspension of disbelief that it requires. The storms were always my favorite. I appreciate the introduction of the storms, and I appreciate the mysticism and magic behind David Lopan and all that good stuff. Uh, so I always enjoyed this movie, and it's it's one of those ones that I'll rewatch if it's on or at least like once a year. So I would definitely recommend this movie. Enjoy it. And I'm happy to have gone through and done this. Yeah, I think you have to rewatch it at least a few times just to try to make sense of what the hell's going on. Because I think this is why we have a two-part episode for this particular movie. It's such a what the fuck. I mean, everything about it is like you're trying to figure out, trying to make sense of what you're seeing. And that rewatching it is not going to help. It's just going to get even weirder. And so, yeah, I love it. It's, uh, it's, I hate to use the word, but it's quintessential 80s. <laughs> it's quintessential <laughs> Sorry, what Brian's laughing at is my cat has decided to join the podcast by placing her tail and her butthole directly into the camera. Yeah, I was. I thought I was looking at the sewer monster's taint for a second there, but no, it was, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, Joe's uh, kitty cat. So anyways, yeah, as I was saying, it's, uh, it's a beautiful film with uh, whimsy and uh, several Oscar nominated Oscar worthy performances, but uh, no, it really, it's just a mismatch. Uh, let's just throw everything at the screen. Let's not try to think too deeply about it. Let's not try to do any research into anyone's uh, history or culture. Let's just kind of throw the things that we love the most, which is Kurt Russell, uh, cowboy motifs, trucker motifs, martial arts, and just a whole lot of uh, big trouble. And let's throw it all at the screen and see what sticks. This was a big budget major motion picture that they were allowed to just basically have carte blanche to do whatever they wanted throughout this entire movie Such freedom in the 80s Ugh, beautiful you read about this afterward kurt russell is often quoted as saying that it's like they really didn't throw any marketing behind this fox studio didn't throw any marketing behind this because they weren't quite sure how do you market this movie i just don't <laughs> think this would happen today today i would no. say that basically we have 30 superhero movies with the exact same plot, just different dudes and leotards and magic powers coming out of different parts of their body, which is also a lot of what I would call rewarmed trash. But you wouldn't have this movie today, which is interesting because we you get a glimpse into the psyche of the time almost uh, and compared to right now and what the population at large is in love with. Uh, it's just, I don't think this would fly anymore. 
Yeah, let's raise a glass to the carte blanche freedom of the 80s for just those crazy, let it let it fly, let it be goofy kind of decisions made by screenwriters and directors. So here's to you. Here's to that. And with that, <laughs> we're going to wind down yet another episode of Film Podcast, and we're going to close the season. So thank you for spending this lovely season with us. Uh, hopefully next season, Brian will actually watch the movies that we're talking about. <laughs> Is that part of the job? Yay to the 80s. It's been a good ride. We're going to need a bigger boat for next season, I think. Cheers to you all. Ooh, a harbinger. All right, brother. That's it, right? All right. (laughs) Bye, everybody. We'll fix it. Well, last chance. I'm a rich man now. Give up the open road. Sell my truck. Settle down. Couldn't have that in my conscience. The only way it might work is if you buy a bigger truck. One with a cozy little apartment in back, just big enough for two. Sounds pretty great. But you know something? Sooner or later, I rub everybody the wrong way, and... Well, let me think about it. God, aren't you even gonna kiss her goodbye? Nope. Hey, Joe, might you be able to recommend any graphic novels? Funny you should ask. The Robot War, a limited series, sci-fi action comedy, graphic novel, written by yours truly. Santa Barbara is under siege by a robot army in a devastating attack. A ragtag group of video game designers, led by a cocky wise-ass, battle across town to rescue his girlfriend and a school full of trapped children. You can get The Robot War on Amazon or through Comixology. That's The Robot War by Joe Friend. Think you're brave enough to read what industry insiders are calling one of the most terrifying screenplays they've ever read? The Making of Merciless by Brian Stumpf in paperback is just $9.99 on Amazon. Simply use the search terms Making Stumpf Merciless. This twisty, clever, award-winning, five-star rated horror about a film crew in the deep woods awakening a demon is flying off the shelves at Amazon.